ماذا يحدث في العالم؟ everybody welcome to a very special solo episode of what in the world i'm your host adam todd brown i'm doing a few solo episodes this month mostly because of scheduling reasons i had a trip out of town to contend with i'm engineering a really exciting podcast that i don't think i'm allowed to talk about which is fine because it barely involves me they're just recording here But I have to do that. So studio time is kind of tight right now. So I'm going to go it alone on a few episodes over the next few weeks. Not just this show. A bunch of the other shows, too. Will they still be funny? Will they still be informative? Sure they will. I do solo podcasts all the goddamn time. Check out In Broad Daylight, if you don't believe me. It's my solo politics and news podcast. And it's very good. And today... You're getting a solo international news and politics episode of What in the World. It's a journey. We're on it together. Who? Me and you. You and me. Us. Just us. This is a club. You're in it. Welcome, baby. So what am I talking to myself about today? Going in a little different direction this week. Still some politics, but a lot less doom and gloom than you're used to from this show. Because here's what happened. Last week... I fell down a rabbit hole reading about British soul singer Joss Stone. And when I say a rabbit hole, I fucking mean that. When you look at the source links for this episode, which you can do on unpops.com, by the way, it's going to look like a fucking CVS receipt. Does anyone outside California get that joke? Because it sure works here. Those receipts are lengthy. But whatever. Do you remember Joss Stone? I'm sure if you're not living in the United States, you probably remember her just fine, and maybe you even wonder why I would ask if you remember Joss Stone. Well, here's the thing, Govna. Most people in the United States assumed Oasis stopped making music after Wonderwall, and they were selling out Wembley Stadium deep into the 2000s. So expecting us to keep up with Joss Stone is a mighty big ask. I mostly remember Joss Stone from her cover of Fell in Love with a Girl by the White Stripes, which is what we're playing right now. It's it's a good cover. I I like it a lot. And this was this came out a long time ago. This was my first introduction to her music. It's a good cover. It would have been way cooler if she still called it Fell in Love with a Girl instead of changing the title and lyrics to Fell in Love with a Boy. Like Jack White didn't change the lyrics to Jolene to Please Don't Take My Girl, you know? But teach her own. It is still a pretty fucking cool cover. And apparently one of her biggest songs is called Super Duper Love, which I'll play a little bit of that too. I do remember this song, but I don't remember it that well. 
The video is certainly 2000s as fuck. Very conveniently kicks off with the chorus, so I can just play this part for you. And if you remember it, you're going to remember it. If you don't, you won't. But this is apparently one of Joss Stone's bigger songs. But I just kind of vaguely remember it. So that's Joss Stone. That's just a quick refresher on her music and what her voice sounds like. Things of that nature. It's called background. I'm building to something. It's how podcasts are made. And here's the thing. I lose track of bands and artists all the time. Like, even ones I like. Like Yaysayer, for example. Anyone out there fucking with Yaysayer? Probably not. But I love their first two albums a whole bunch. And then my job changed in a way that led to me listening to a little less music. And they sort of fell by the wayside. And then a couple weeks ago, I saw they were in L.A. and decided to go see them on a total fucking whim. Bought tickets last minute because I it was sold out, but I happened to find face value tickets on StubHub. Two. The only two. So I thought, kismet, baby. Those tickets were meant for me. So I bought them. I went and saw Yaysayer. And it was one of the best damn live shows I have ever seen. So I looked into them again, and it turns out they have like three albums I've never heard. Their new album is one of my favorite albums of the year so far. That's how it usually works. You just, for whatever reason, miss a band's or artist's output for a while, and then you're pleasantly surprised by something new they've done. So you catch up. That's not how it worked with Joss Stone. I didn't hear a new single and decide to do a deep dive into what her music's been like over the past decade. No, the reintroduction of singer Joss Stone to my conch, short for consciousness, saves me time when I talk, happened via this headline. Singer Joss Stone deported from Iran. Fucking what? Iran? Like Iran? Iran? The country we were just on the brink of war with? The country we are still on the brink of war with? That Iran. And yeah, that is the one. What the fuck was Joss Stone doing in Iran in the first place? Like, being deported implies you wanted to be there. So that's comforting, at least. It means she hadn't been abducted or something crazy like that. And as it turns out, the answer to the reason why she was in Iran, it's not only really fucking interesting, but kind of sweet and kind of a beautiful story. So much so that, as mentioned earlier... I fell down a long and winding rabbit hole of Joss Stone information. And oh man, has her career been a journey. I mean, obviously, if it's culminated in her getting deported from Iran, but there's been a lot in between that and her covering the white stripes back in 2003. And I'm going to tell you about it. The first thing to know about Joss Stone is that she's still pretty young. I say still because she's been around for quite a while now. Her first album came out in 2003, and she's only 32 now. So for her entire adult life, she's been a professional musician. And a successful one at that. Her second album, Mind, Body, and Soul, was nominated for a Grammy. She was also nominated for Best New Artist 
that same year, which is weird. Second album, Best New Artist. It's fine. We know how the Grammys do. She has five total nominations and won a Grammy in 2007. Her third album was the second ever highest debut for a British female solo artist on the Billboard 200. She sold 15 million records worldwide. In 2011, her net worth was estimated to be 9 million fancy British pounds, making her the fifth richest British musician under 30 at the time. So she's had a good run, clearly, but it hasn't all been good, as you would expect, with literally any life on the planet, any human life anyway. It's very rarely great every second from beginning to end. Uh, one example, the 2007 Brit Awards, where eagle-eared viewers, that's not a thing, accused her of speaking in an American accent. Let's go to the tape. I just want to say, I just want to say big, big, big love to Robbie Williams for going through what he is going through right now. Big love to him. Because he's going through and he's strong and he's inspiring. And also, big love to Russell because, you know, I think he may have a conversation with Amy Winehouse. And he was all like, they tried to make me go to rehab. And he was like, uh-uh, I'm going to get there before I hit 20. Okay, so the nominations for the best British male are... Cliffhanger, you're never going to find out. So, I mean, I guess people were mad about the Robbie Williams, Russell Brand comments too. But whatever, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about that accent first. For starters, as an American, she still just sounds British to me. I'm sure if you're British, you can totally hear whatever attendees and viewers of the Brit Awards were so up in arms about. Just like we heard it when Madonna started sounding vaguely British at award shows here in the United States for a while. But here's the thing. That shit happens when you move to a place with a different accent sometimes. People who move from one part of the United States to another lose their accents all the fucking time. You live in the South you move somewhere that doesn't have a southern accent. Some people doggedly hang on to that heavy southern accent for their entire lives. But more often than not, it starts to fade and blend with the accent of the place where you're living. We don't drag those people on social media over it. And maybe it's a little less reasonable for Madonna, but Joss Stone had been working in the United States regularly since the age of 14 by this point. That's an impressionable age. Obviously, she's going to be influenced by how the people around her speak. So I can forgive her for that. As for the Robbie Williams bit, with a little more context, it seems like she was more calling Russell Brand out for making fun of Robbie Williams for going to rehab when Russell Brand was on the verge of going to rehab himself. Had probably been there by now. I don't know Russell Brand's fucking history. And hey... Maybe she was drunk or something, too. I don't know. She was like 20 at the time. Give her a break. She also had a record label controversy that I can totes relate to, if that's a thing we're still saying. One of my first full-time writing jobs was as the managing editor of a comedy website that this huge 
publication was launching. It wasn't Cracked. Don't worry. Uh, This was the job that got me the job at Cracked, basically. And it was a comedy site, but it wasn't a comedy publication. And we were this really unique but kind of small corner of a huge company. And it was a really cool thing. And their goal was for us to hit a million page views a month by six months. And we hit that the first month and it just kept growing from there. And at that point, like I had written for Cracked, but I wasn't working full time for them. And my goal was no longer to work full time for them. It was to challenge them. And we were getting really close and those motherfuckers knew it. Which motherfuckers? Doesn't matter. And then the publication in question sold all of their internet properties to this new piece of shit parent company run by really legitimately terrible people. And they arranged for me to keep my job with the site and keep the site going, which was cool. But when I went to meet with the new owners, it was obvious almost immediately that I couldn't work with them or even trust them to not turn this fun thing that I'd started with a friend I met on the internet into something ugly and corporate and lame. And I knew they didn't care about what I'd built. And I knew they were going to make me do things that would ruin it. So I quit. And when I did, they gave my comedy writing job to a girlfriend of one of the executives at the new company. She was a poet. I mean that literally. That was her only writing experience. She wrote poems, not comedy poems, just poems, which is all fine and well. There's definitely a place in the world for poetry, but it also can't be your only credit on the resume you're submitting for a comedy job. That's absurd. And sure enough, the site was dead within a year of me leaving. And it was a huge bummer. But that happens a lot when companies that do artistic or entertainment or even news-related stuff get sold. And it's what happened to Joss Stone's record label, EMI, in 2007. That's when it was taken over by a new parent company, a private equity firm called Terra Firma. What could go wrong? As you'd expect, this company cared more about money than it did music, and everyone involved hated it. Within a few years, the Rolling Stones, Radiohead, And lots of other bands whose names will mostly just matter to British people left the label entirely. Joss Stone wanted to be one of those people that left. And the problems started not only after the company got bought out, but when the new company took over, they kept delaying the release of her fourth album, Color Me Free, that probably had something to do with the fact that she recorded it in a week at a venue owned by her mother Instead of, you know, using a studio and taking time to make sure it sounds like a major label release. But whatever, man. Artists gonna art. Let her make the music she wants. You fucking goons. Here's a quote. They wanted me to record one type of album. I wanted to record the type of music I wanted to make. I signed to a label which was taken over by businessmen. And I was in meetings with people whose background was in running plastics telling me how, when, and what I should record. End quote. They also took exception to the album cover, which showed her contorted body stuffed into a cage. And for some reason, they they did not like that. Her previous album cover, she was naked, and that was fine. 
But this time around, they considered her being in a cage offensive somehow. So for the American version, they released it with just her name and the album title in white letters on a purple background. I think I remember seeing that in stores and thinking that it looked like a terrible album cover. And I wondered why so little work would go into such a big deal. Because this was Joss Stone's fourth album. The album before this was her biggest selling album. So you'd think they'd spend a little more money. And it turns out they did. They just didn't like what they got out of it and forced her to release something else in the United States. Because we're so sensitive. And that was the last straw for her. In order to leave her contract, she gave back a reported 1.2 million pounds that she was given as an advance when she signed with the label. And another 800000 that she was owed for the Color Me Free album. So how's that for artistic integrity? Here's another quote. To me, music has to be about freedom. It's the most important thing in my life. More important than money, everything. It is my life. I was happy to hand over everything I had. My house, the clothes on my back, just to get free. I didn't care. I don't care. I've never been motivated by money. And I also know I can earn the money back. I want my freedom. Hell yes, Joss Stone. And it seems like she was right about earning that money back. As I mentioned earlier, as of 2011, she was the fifth richest musician in England under the age of 30. And that was putting out albums on her own record label. So, fuck you, EMI. That said, all of that financial success probably played a big role in another interesting but also completely fucking terrifying moment in her life. A few weeks after the article announcing that financial status to the world came out, two men, Junior Bradshaw, 32, and Kevin Liverpool, 35, were arrested after hatching a plot to kidnap, rob, and murder Joss Stone. And it's not like they were caught talking about it on the internet or something. They were caught in her neighborhood with swords, a body bag, rope, and directions to her house. They also had maps and aerial photos of her property. And in case you're wondering, yes, she was home at the time. Notes found in the possession of the two perpetrators indicated they wanted to behead Joss Stone and dump her body in the river because of her links to the royal family. And by links, they mean she was a guest at the wedding of Prince William and Catherine Middleton. But come on, didn't it feel like we were all guests at that wedding? That was the aliens landing of royal weddings. It united the world. Does that mean we all have ties to the royal family? It sure does. But also, this was really more about money. There were text messages on Liverpool's phone that showed he'd wanted to rob someone of a million pounds or more for months prior to the planned assault. So it probably was that article that made Joss Stone his chosen target. Creepy. On the bright side, she had something else going on around this time that hopefully helped keep her mind off of all of that, holy shit, I almost just got murdered stuff. In May 2011, the world learned of the existence of arguably the most improbable music supergroup of all time. If you're not familiar with the term, a supergroup is when a bunch of really high-profile musicians from other bands or who are big solo artists on their own come together and form a band. Are you ready for this lineup? Here goes. 
Joss Stone, Mick Jagger, Damian Marley. It's Bob Marley's kid. Dave Stewart from the fucking Eurythmics and Indian classical and electronic music composer A.R. Rahman. Fucking what? The group was called Super Heavy, which was a reference to Muhammad Ali, apparently. And it was Dave Stewart's idea. He first reached out to Mick Jagger after being inspired by the music he heard around his home in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica, which sounds exactly what the middle-aged white dude who had found a band like this would say. He reached out to Mick Jagger, and they decided that their budding reggae supergroup needed some Indian music influences also. Again, exactly what this dude would say. So they brought A.R. Rahman into the fold, and this guy must be pretty fucking huge. I, full disclosure alert, do not live in India so I'm very unfamiliar with the music stars of that country. I know more about your political scandals than anything. But I looked up A.R. Raman, and what I found, I mean, I found a bunch of stuff. The guy's huge. But one of the things that stood out was a song called Marvel Anthem that is on the official YouTube page of Marvel India. Sorry, India Marvel, which obviously Marvel Comics, but in India, is that a minor thing to you? India is the biggest democracy in the world. And this is apparently Marvel India's anthem. If you go out and watch this video, there's all sorts of scenes from Infinity War just uh, floating along in the background. So like, does this play underneath Marvel movies in India? Cause if so, I only want to see the Indian version of Marvel movies from now on. Right. <laughs> I didn't even expect that. That worked out nicely. All right. So he rounds out this super group with Joss Stone, Mick Jagger, Damian Marley, and Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. And because the details of this band aren't quirky enough already, it's worth noting that they not only recorded their only album at Jim Henson Studios in Los Angeles, which seems like an interesting choice, but they also recorded 29 songs in 10 fucking days. Apparently there is a total of about 35 hours of music that was recorded with some of the songs lasting as long as an hour and 10 minutes. Mick Jagger sings the chorus of one of the songs in Sanskrit, people. And somehow all we got from all of this was one 12-track album. And believe me when I say that for curiosity reasons alone, I want to hear the other 34 hours because Twist, the album isn't terrible. The combination worked surprisingly well, especially on the, the lead single, which is called Miracle Worker, which I'll start playing right now. Now, this one reaching out to all the lovers who might be thinking of breaking up. Huh. Now, or maybe even making that's Damian Marley, obviously. Here comes Joss Stone. It's a swinging little tune, right? 
And you would expect that Mick Jagger showing up in the middle of a reggae ballad duet between Joss Stone and Damian Marley would be weird. And you are 100% correct. It is very fucking weird, but in the best possible fucking way. Here it comes. I'm sorry, I like that. I don't think this album sold that well. I don't think many people bought it, which means the same thing. But Mick Jagger is in the fucking pocket on this song. I would I would encourage people to go out and watch this video for no other reason than to see Mick Jagger's pink suit that he's wearing in this video. It is in every possible way the sixth member of what I still maintain has to be one of the strangest supergroup combinations of all fucking time. Let's fade that out, Brett. And it probably won't surprise you a whole bunch to know that after being involved in a project like that, and I'm assuming before being involved in a project like that, it's probably why she was part of it. Her music took a decidedly world music kind of direction. And if you don't know what I mean by that, here you go. This song is called Mama Earth from the album Mama Earth. And in the morning I see clearly quite a departure from the 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 days of covering the white stripes in 2003 but also shouldn't be that surprising coming from someone who paid more than 2 million British dollars <laughs> to get out of her record label because the record label wanted her to make one particular kind of music can't chain down Joss Stone you fucking monsters but she didn't just start making world music she started making music all around the world how about that uh turn of phrase huh that's what i went to college for just joking i didn't go to college anyway in 2014 she announced something called the total world tour and her goal was pretty simple but also incredibly complicated she wanted to play a show in every country on earth If nothing else, that's complicated because we can't really agree on how many countries there are on Earth. The United States officially recognizes fewer than 200. When you take dependent territories and shit like that into account, the UN recognizes 241. So I have no idea how, but the number she landed on was 204, which is quite a bit considering the United States doesn't even recognize that many as existing. So that's how many countries she planned to hit while touring the world. And remember, she announced this in 2014. So it's not like all these countries are safe. By the the very thing implied by the name of the tour, you would have to include places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq. They all have to be on the list for it to be a total world tour and for that name to be accurate. But also, this wasn't 
some kind of publicity stunt where she'd be ushered in and out, surrounded by dozens of security guards, traveling in armored cars and shit. The plan was to collaborate with local musicians and artists and learn more about the music and culture and humanitarian issues of each country, and then work with local charities to see if there was a way they could help. You want a quote? I got one. My mission is to explore and understand the universal language of music in every country on this planet. The result of music has never been a negative one, and it shows us that we all have something in common. We can all cry and we can all laugh. Music is emotion, and in music, we are all one. The tour will be tiring and tough, and I know at times very emotional, but it will be a truly amazing journey of discovery and one hell of a ride. Which, that's a cool quote, but it's not like this is possible, right? If a relatively prominent musician had just been country hopping for the past five years, playing shows in some of the most terrifying places on the planet, we'd all know about that by now, right? Well, she has been, and I didn't know, and I fucking know everything. So you can be forgiven if you weren't aware either. And if you were aware, keep it to yourself. No one likes a show off. And what she's done in terms of bringing music to literally every corner of the world. I don't know. Literally every corner of the world. Nope. World doesn't have corners. (laughs) Only maps do. But what she's done to bring music to every country on the fucking planet is it's almost incomprehensible. I sincerely hope this is made into a documentary or something at some point. Here's what she told Fault Magazine about how she came up with the idea for the tour. I was in Japan and I was up a mountain playing a gig called Fuji Rock, which is this lovely festival. I looked around and I thought, everything is so different here. I kind of felt like I was on another planet. Of course I wasn't. I was on planet Earth, but I felt that I was very, very far away from home. The culture was very different there. The people were different. Their accents were different. They looked different. Everything was different. But when you make music, you connect with these people just like you would anybody else anywhere else. So I thought, well, hold on a minute. If music can take us here, music can take us anywhere. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do a world tour? You know the answer is always going to be money. That's why people don't do it. But I just decided that wasn't really right and was going to just do a world tour and spread as much goodness as I can through music. And, you know, I'm doing it. When the magazine asked what she learned from the tour by that point, which this was in 2017, for the record, three years into the tour, she said this, People are good, aren't they? I had that opinion anyway, so to say that I learned something on the world tour is kind of bullshit, but I think that it solidified my opinion. Every time I move from one country to the next, I get this wonderful feeling of, ah, I knew it. I knew people were good. I know this. But in a way, I'm trying to prove to myself that it doesn't matter where you're from or what culture you were brought up into. At the end of the day, we're human beings. We all bleed red and we all love and we all laugh and we all cry. You know, we're the same. We're brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. It doesn't bear any difference at all to where you go. So far, I'm a girl who's only been to 77 countries. Maybe at the end of it, I might have a different opinion. I'm always open to my opinion changing, but so far, it's not happened. End quote. And goddamn, if that's not a message that the world can use right now, in case you're still wondering 
why I'm dedicating an entire episode of this podcast to Joss Stone. Another thing about this tour that is pretty damn great, she's funding the tour or funded the tour mostly with her own money. Here's what she said about that. When the money starts to run out, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I can do a big organized gig that funds the next leg of the trip. And now, if you're an especially militant environmental advocate, you might be tempted to mention that, uh, irony alert, taking a band that'll be followed by thousands of fans all around the world isn't the best thing for mama nature. Well, fear not, Captain Planet. On top of being the first artist to attempt an actual world tour, she also made it a point to be one of the first artists to attempt to balance her carbon emissions from touring. She partnered with a company called Energy Revolution to figure out how many miles she'd be traveling and what it would take to offset it all. As of October 2017, she'd balanced 2.7 million travel miles by donating toward wind power generation and reforestation. She planted more than three. I mean, she didn't plant them personally, but she paid to have 3,000 trees planted in the Tamil Nadu region of India, a site that's been ravaged by decades of deforestation. So that's pretty fucking cool. Everything about this story is pretty damn cool. But of course, as mentioned earlier, a tour of this magnitude requires making stops in some problematic places, to put it mildly. But at the same time, this isn't a pop star playing a show for the Saudi royal family for a million dollars. Like, we hear about that all the time. Here's what she said about playing countries like that. The government and the men and women that are in power across our planet, sometimes they do messed up things, sometimes they do useful things. But you can't judge the people because of those guys. I'm not gonna do it. And she meant that. Over the past five years, she's played shows in all the places. No matter how war-torn or otherwise chaotic the place may be, she's gone there and done everything in her power to put on some show of some sort. That includes a performance in fucking North Korea in March 2019. She traveled with a group called Simon Corio Tours. That's K-O-R-Y-O. If you go on their Instagram page right now and scroll back to March, you'll see all sorts of pictures of her touring the country. There's one of her learning a traditional Korean folk song called Ararang. I promise I pronounced that the way it looks. That picture is her on the Pyongyang subway. There's another of her performing in a bar. So she did do a show in North Korea. And granted, being British and traveling to North Korea isn't quite the same as being American and traveling there, but it's still got to be a pretty intense experience. And judging from the crowd, it's not one that ended with her making a ton of money. But who else can say they did a show in North Korea in 2019? And shockingly, that wasn't even close to the craziest stop on this tour. Shortly before the North Korea show, she illegally crossed the border into Syria to perform there. And she did it at the exact same time ISIS was making its last stand in the city of Baguz. She posted a video from the bathroom of her hotel shortly after entering the country. Let's give it a listen. Okay, so we are here in the bathroom. I can hear the loo. 
So we did the crossing. Um, we're in Syria. Um, it's bloody cold. Um, I've got a blanket from Paul's room, which is great. So I'm just gonna, you know, warm myself up in this and get used to my new room, which is actually really cool. I like it. I know it's freezing, but I'm just so glad that I'm here. I'm so glad that we kind of... Nothing bad happened. I'm just so glad that nothing bad happened. That's it, really. (laughs) I'm just so glad that nothing bad happened. How often do you hear a musician say that on the eve of a concert in a country they're performing in for the first time? That shit is intense. I'll put a link to the video on our website. It looks like something you'd see in a movie about white people trapped in a hotel in a foreign country. Like she's whispering. She looks really fucking nervous. There's a Kansas Jayhawks blanket for some reason. I can't explain that part, except she's not trapped. She went there willingly just to bring music to people. And she did. She played a show at a small theater at 11 a.m. in the town of Derik in the northeastern corner of the country. And then I believe she played Iraq after that. And the, the crazy details don't end there when it comes to the Syria trip. She entered the country with a journalist friend named Paul Conroy. In 2012, Paul Conroy and a colleague... I don't know if you remember this woman. Uh, Her name was Marie Colvin. She was a war correspondent who wore a fucking eye patch because she lost an eye covering a war at one point. They made a series of live broadcasts from an area that was being shelled by the Syrian government. And Syrian President Bashar al-Assad ordered additional strikes to stop that broadcast. And during that strike, Marie Colvin was killed. Paul Conroy was injured, but managed to escape. And at that point, Assad put a million dollar bounty on Conroy's head. And he's been wanted by the Syrian government ever since. If any of that sounds familiar, it's possibly because those events formed the basis of the 2018 film, A Private War. And this was his first time back in Syria since that attack in 2012. Here's a quote from him. I wasn't scared going back. I had enough good mates who are special forces around me, and I trust them entirely. So Joss Stone not only crossed the border into Syria illegally just to perform a small show for no money to a crowd of less than 100 people. She did it while accompanied by someone who was wanted by the dictator who rules that country. While a war was happening. That is some movie shit. There could be an entire film about just that one show, and I would very much watch it. And I barely remember hearing anything about this when it happened, which seems crazy to me. And that brings us full circle back to the story that sent me down my new temporary path as part-time Joss Stone historian. Joss Stonorian. Maybe you saw the headlines a couple weeks ago, the one I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Joss Stone deported from Iran. And that headline probably seems a whole lot less crazy now than it did at the beginning of this episode. Iran was meant to be the last stop on the Total World Tour. She was planning to visit Kish Island, a popular Iranian tourist resort in the Persian Gulf, 
British citizens can visit for 14 days by purchasing a visa on arrival, provided they've hired a guide and booked a hotel room in advance. Use code UNPOPS at checkout for 15% off. But that doesn't mean it's completely safe. An FBI agent on an unauthorized intelligence gathering mission vanished while visiting Kish Island in 2007. Authorities think he's being held in an Iranian prison, but who knows? So don't let the part about this being a resort fool you into thinking this was not a risky endeavor whatsoever. This was someone from the West entering Iran, a woman, no less. And unfortunately, Joss Stone never got a chance to perform in Iran. Women aren't allowed to do that publicly in Iran. And she still might have gotten away with it, though, if not for some negative publicity a few weeks earlier. After performing in Saudi Arabia, she posted a photo on Instagram showing her wearing a pink headscarf with a caption about how she was actually wearing it by choice and that women in Saudi Arabia are strong and exercising their choice to be free, wear what they want and do what they want. And now, I mean, she's being a little loose with the definition of the word free there, for sure. And people rightfully called her out over it. But I don't know, man. To have a rich white woman in her late 20s slash early 30s travel to every country on the globe and come out the other end having committed exactly one act of cultural inappropriateness feels like a pretty decent and unexpected result to me. Like, can you imagine if it was Gwyneth Paltrow doing this? She sings too, you know. Whatever the case, it's definitely not enough of a transgression, in my opinion anyway, to undo whatever goodwill she deserves to have built up with the world after all of this. That said, the controversy was enough to put her on the radar of Iranian authorities, and she was detained at the airport as soon as she entered the country. She swore she wasn't planning a public concert, but they did not believe her. This is what she said about it. Well, we got to Iran, we got detained, and then we got deported. Personally, I don't fancy going to an Iranian prison, nor am I trying to change the politics of the countries I visit, nor do I wish to put other people in danger. We were aware there couldn't be a public concert as I am a woman and that is illegal in this country. However, it seems the authorities don't believe we wouldn't be playing a public show and a decision was made to detain us for the night and deport us in the morning. Of course, I was gutted. End quote. And so with that, her dream of performing in every country on earth ended one show away from successfully accomplishing that goal. Is that a sad ending? I mean, it's obviously sad to some extent. If given a choice, you want her to play that last show and have done this great thing. But also, she did do a great thing. She did an amazing thing. A thing I personally found inspiring enough to be here still talking to you about it all these minutes later. She didn't perform in Iran, but she performed everywhere else. And she brought a lot of joy to a lot of people and a particularly rare kind of joy. I lived in South Dakota for 10 years. By no means is that a war-torn third world country, even though it felt like it sometimes. Even then, I can't describe how grateful I was when a band I wanted to see actually bothered playing a show there. Now imagine you're living somewhere that's just been obliterated by war or crime or poverty. 
or maybe all those things all at once. The kind of places governments tell their people they should only visit if it's absolutely necessary, or in some cases they tell people not to visit at all. Imagine you're living in the middle of all that, and here comes international singing sensation Joss Stone, paying her own way to come to you and sing you a few songs. That could realistically be the coolest thing that ever happens in your life. I mean, short of the United States deciding overnight that we're not going to intervene in other countries' affairs anymore. But barring that, you could do a whole lot worse than a surprise Joss Stone show. And she's been giving countless numbers of people that exact experience time and time again for five solid years now. If you go to YouTube and search Joss Stone Total World Tour, you'll see tons of videos of her performing with all of these musicians from all around the world. And it's just such a good and positive thing. And I don't know. It's a cool story, man. So I wanted to tell you about it. And I just did. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out Unpops.com for links to all the stories I talked about on this episode. There are a whole bunch of them, as mentioned before. Also, I don't know, follow me on Twitter at Adam Todd Brown. Follow the network at Unpops. Follow this show at Unpops World. And do all the other things that you know I want you to do. And that's it. All right, let's get out of here. Go, uh... Check out Joss Stone's Total World Tour on YouTube. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. (laughs) 